This is FM Forward, a podcast brought to you by IFMA Boston. I'm your host, Jackie Fallah. If you missed the fact that we both started and finished season two, it's understandable. We let the pandemic take over. In season three, I invite you to join me as we seize the 11 core competencies of the facilities management profession by the horns and wrangle insights from real estate professionals that get real with us about leverage, learn the language of lean for solving problems and empowering people, navigate our way through the internet of things and analyze outsourcing, insourcing, and being resourceful. You won't want to miss out. I'm Jackie Fallon, and I want to welcome you to season three. Good morning, Amy Marks. I am super excited to have you with me today to discuss industrialized construction. It's true. You skeptics out there, I really do get excited about innovations in our industry that are certain to bring about increased safety, better quality, savings, and sustainability. The times they are changing, and I want you FMs to be prepared. But first, Amy, I must know, was it you or Jim Lynch that's responsible for your fabulous Autodesk title, Head of Industrialized Construction Strategy and Evangelism. I wish I could say it was me, but it wasn't. It was actually Jim. So it was? I, it was actually Jim. I think when uh, we talked about it, he, he said, this is what I'm thinking for your title. Um, but he did say, do you think industrialized construction is the right terminology? And I, I agreed with him. I thought it was the right terminology because it hadn't really been utilized in that way. And he was really the visionary behind it. Wow. Okay. Yes. And what about the queen of prefab? Did you come to him as the queen of pre prefab or did he name you that too? No, I was the queen of prefab long, long before Jim. Actually, I think Jim found me. I'm sure part of it was he found me because I was the queen of prefab years before when he had asked me to review some of the strategy going on at Autodesk. And, you know, between social media, I think seeing my name out there and then having some customer refer like recommendations that he speak to me, that's actually how we found each other. So I was the queen of prefab a long time before. Oh my gosh, I love it. So, you know, it's, Interesting that that was your title and industrialized construction encompasses that as a piece of it, right? Right. I still have to refer back to the definition of it from time to time to make sure that I'm conceptualizing this platform the right way. So could you explain to our listeners exactly what it is and then we'll get into kind of the granular detail of what it means to an FM. Sure. Industrialized construction is the application of manufacturing techniques to the built environment. And don't let the word construction mislead you. That means to conceptualization and planning, design, pre-construction, construction, manufacturing, assembly, and operation. So the entirety of the, the building life cycle from start to finish. And that terminology is the umbrella terminology. And inclusive in that is Lots of different concepts from, you know, the prefabrication continuum, which is, you know, the physical manifestation of the pieces and parts to advanced building methodologies and techniques like 3D printing and robotics and automation. And also things like process and technology enablers like building information modeling and 
you know, internet of things as well as, you know, big data and analytics and, and lean manufacturing. I'm a big lean manufacturing fan as well. So it's, it's an umbrella terminology that incorporates all of that into it. So that's really what you should think about applying manufacturing techniques to the entirety of the building life cycle. Okay. So I love that. And our listeners likely uh, will feel a little bit of relief because we had a couple of really passionate lean um, advocates uh, join us for a conversation. Melissa McEwen from Haley and Aldrich and um, Phil Mehmet from Harvard Business School talked a few episodes ago about, you know, the principles of high performance and how lean can help deliver that. So many times people are like, I, you know, I understand the waste thing. Like, stop talking to me about like eliminating waste. They're like, there's so much more to it. And I love that, you know, those principles really are evident in industrialized construction. So let's talk about those trends in a little bit more depth. And you just put me in my place, Amy, if I get too far off of the the track that's going to matter most to FMs, sure. you just redirect me, okay? But yes. I just want to talk a little bit about uh, prefabrication, additive manufacturing, robotics, which you mentioned, big data, you also mentioned, and the internet of things. Like everybody's always IOTing and what does that mean as it relates to buildings? I know you'll be able to help us sure. have a better understanding of it. I feel like that's my skill set in life, by the way, is explaining somewhat complicated things into stories and examples that people can understand. To be honest, that's that's probably my big, aside from aggregating lots of information all the time and you know figuring out like trends and future, I actually think I'm somewhat simple in my thought process and that that hopefully will be helpful to what you, you just said a lot. Like that's basically like let's change the world. How do we do it? And what does it mean to like FMs? Which is great. <laughs> like I, I actually think it's the right topic. It's like okay, now where do we start? You know, like what do FMs really need to know? And actually, the people that support FMs around them in their role. So I think you have to start from the beginning, right? So let's start at the at the at the beginning of when buildings are conceptualized and planned. The one thing that FMs need to know is first of all, your voice is very valuable upfront. And you need to be upfront. And whether that's in asset management or planning of facilities or operating facilities, design for manufacturing and assembly, which is really the methodology to design for uh, you know, fabricated or manufactured pieces and parts, there, there are implications to that in the way in which we design and engineer buildings. We want the voice of the person planning and operating the building included in that conversation. So it's not just about how do we create pieces and parts and plan for assets, really, because really these assemblies become assets in many cases, right? They're, they're operating plants. They're the central utility plant. They are, you know, highly, most of the prefabrication and manufacturing that's being done in construction, the productization is being done in the heavy MEP side of the house, right? So the stuff behind the walls, above the ceilings, in the plant rooms, in the interstitial spaces, that's all the stuff that FMs care about, right? The operations of the building. So as you think about how these buildings are going to be planned and what assets you have that eventually need to be upgraded, maybe reused someplace else, or replaced, 
That's why prefabrication should be your biggest and best friend, right? So, and, and productization as well. So what we need you up there for is to say, okay, we need to operate this building. They, you're not buying pumps anymore. We're not designing pumps. We're designing pump skids. We're not making, you know, you're not doing pipes within central utility plants. You're designing the central utility plant. And I think for FMs, the, the beauty of having larger pieces of equipment is almost the way you have to look at it. Larger assets that are fabricated or manufactured items. How do you decouple them from the entirety of the building so that they can be serviced and replaced and you can actually look at them as assets, um, as equipment, and as you know, functioning pieces of the building that you have to service, right? So we want your voice up front in planning and by decoupling process, right? So if all those things I just mentioned are just means and methods. You don't really get a say in means and methods when you're bringing four or five trades together with all different means and methods to make a central utility plant. But when you've productized it up front and you're designing around that as equipment, around that as an asset, that's when your voice truly becomes powerful. And that's when we can make huge transformational change in the way in which you're, you're, you operate buildings and what buildings can actually tell you and how they need to be serviced and what the end user experience is going to be within them. So starting from the beginning, you now don't just have sticks and bricks, right? You have an aggregation of equipment, I'm putting that in quotes you can't see, but um, equipment and, and, and manufactured products that are going to operate in such a way that is effective for your end user and for your facilities manager. So think of the design now more like that than intent. Wow, it, that is a lot to absorb. And I will say, I think it's incredibly interesting um, we may have to do another whole entire session on how to package and communicate this change to the C-suite so that the FMs do, in fact, get the seat at the table. They're often an afterthought. And as you say, you know, it is critically important that the functioning of the building um, be informed by the expertise of this career group. hundred percent. We're not seeing it. We're not seeing it. They're handed buildings that don't work that are brand new. And by the way, it's a lot easier to manage the process when you've chunked the building into lots of larger pieces of equipment instead of just sort of pouring little pieces of equipment into the building wherever they lay, you know, wherever it made sense, wherever they kind of could fit it. So I think by being intentional about the assets and the functioning of the building, it's going to create better buildings. I mean, the 50-year life lifespan building, we all shoot for that. But if you've inter interspersed, you know, the MEP so integrated within that 50-year plus lifespan building, you, you've eliminated scaling of that technology. You've eliminated swapping of that technology in some cases. You've eliminated um, you know, future-proofing of that technology in some places. You just can't take the whole building apart when you want to upgrade the HVAC system, right? So right. I think the role of the FM and the role of people that are looking at these things as assets and, as, um, and especially when you start bringing an IoT into it, when it's giving you information, live information, um, or when you bring things in, as you create pieces and parts, if you're able to track those and understand what the building looks like with digital twin information, right? So a digital representation of the of the building on handover, and then the functioning of that building after handover, so that we truly understand 
you know, it becomes really more like an autonomous building, a, a living, breathing, talking, um, adapting building for the end users and the facility managers once you can truly integrate IoT. And how is the best way to integrate IoT? Well, it's hard on when you think sticks and bricks. It's easier when you think big pieces of equipment or big spaces that are are fabricated, right? That's a little easier to, in, and we have lots of people making um, pieces and parts and fabricated elements with IoT in them all over the world. So that's, that people have been starting to do that already. Um, okay, so that's, that is fascinating. Let's talk about those two components. Let's talk about, you know, in a little bit more detail or put it into your story, um, what a digital twin is, how that comes to be born and why the internet of things has anything to do with that digital twin. You know, how is it networked? What does being networked mean? That is a whole nother show in itself, but I'll do my oh, best. it is? Okay. No, just, no, no, it's great. Just to the high level. I love it. I love it. And I think it's important. So I am part of, and Autodesk is part of the Digital Twin Consortium, where they, if you look that up, we're coming up with definitions, just like you said, and use cases, just like you said, so that people can understand why you would want a digital twin and for what purpose and how would it serve you. And in reality, digital twins, you know, it's a, it's a kind of an interesting term because it comes from the manufacturing side of, of the world. And oh. digital twin has actually been utilized more for piece part making and for manufacturing of, you know, a piece of equipment. But the digital twin consortium has come together because truly this is applying that methodology, that thought process to the AEC environment. So depending on who you talk to about digital twin and the definition, you will definitely see a, a spectrum of definitions, right? So from the AEC perspective, you know, my definition, I can't speak for anybody else at the moment. Um, and, you know, obviously I work for Autodesk, but I'm, I'm, I'm really speaking more for Amy Marks at the moment, is that, you know, the vision for digital twin in my world, the way that I, I view industrialized construction is that you are able to have digital representations of the building as you design the building, not later, not as more information is informed, you know, not when real information gets put there up front. But if you truly think about what we said, if things are truly productized and manufactured mm -hmm. and you're looking at the buildings as assets, you should be able to have digital representations, functional digital representations, real digital representations of those products up front. Think a generator, right? Yep. So a generator is something that is fabricated. It's utilized in AEC. It is a product. It's not a process of fabricating something after the fact. It We design around generators, right? Okay. When you think digital twins, if you're able, the example I gave you about the pump versus the pump skid, you not only have to understand there's a digital representation for that, that pump within the product of the pump skid and somebody owns that pump skid, some fabricator manufacturer, that we're able to understand and hand over truly a digital representation of the building, not just for handover. And I think that's the beginning of the vision for most. But then afterwards, how do you use that so that let's say you have assets around the world and you had pump skids, as we just said, in every building around the world. Let's say something there needs to be upgraded. Well, but for digital twins right now, how do you know in all the millions of pieces and parts within all of, let's say it's a big, I don't know, manufacturing facility. I have one client, we were just talking about this exact thing. That pump now needs to be upgraded. Where did you use that pump? What version of that pump was used? 
what product was it? You know, what pump now I'm saying pump skid because really it becomes part of a larger assembly, right? So yeah. you want to be able to track and utilize that information and understand that asset and how it's operating and functioning and if it needs to be upgraded and does it, you know, that's really the vision of digital twin at, at, I don't want to say it's fullest because there's more than that, but from an FM perspective, not only do you get a digital twin representation of the building at handover, but that you could operate the building utilizing that information functionally after you received the information. And now I, I know what component inside the skid has failed and I can either order the part myself or the system alerts me to the fact that they have sent out to Amazon, the request for the piece. Or a recall or the fact that it's hit its end of life or it doesn't have to be failed. It could be the fact that like there's an upgrade available or whatever that is, right? So okay. think about it like that. I mean, think about my vision for the future and the way that I, I see the world is I think of, look, look at Tesla. The vision for Tesla is that I'm driving my car and that it gives it a software upgrade to it at any time. And that would allow my car to operate differently. Like if you truly could productize things within the building, that vision is not far away. That vision of upgrading software remotely through internet of things for pieces and parts that are within your equipment, within your building. I mean, some of that already exists. And so, you know, think of that in totality as more and more things are productized within that building space upfront as assets, whether they're right now, we kind of think of them as prefabrication, but in reality, they'll be products. That's productization is one level up, right? When they are more like the generator, when that pump skid becomes a range of pump skids you can buy that are standard, right? As opposed to, hey, can we just make this pump into a pump skid? So I think, you know, it's it truly is going to be a place that the information that gets put in up front in that uh, product, you know, and what how those products, because a lot of them right now, the, the cool part for FMs is a lot of those I'm putting in quotes again, products, those prefabricated elements now that will evolve themselves to be standard lines of products need your input. They need, like I always use a perfect example. Um, well, how am I changing the filter on something? If you've created a product where I have to get up on a ladder to do that, it's a fail. You know what I'm saying? Like if I can't squeeze my body in to do some sort of preventative maintenance as a normal sized human, we failed. So I think those, as people evolve their prefabricated elements into more products, we need to hear the voice of the operator, of the engineer even really, that's on the ground, boots on the ground, not just the person at high level understanding the assets, but all the way down to the ground of the person that has to change the filter. Because Perfect. that's truly how a product, and, and by the way, products won't be the end of the end. I mean, they'll be evolving over time. And we need that uh, loop of info, iterative information as we evolve and create better and better products from the person with the boots on the ground, the consumer, really. I mean, that that building engineer is really the consumer in a lot of ways, right? So when they've you know shimmied in and can't reach, or I remember designing something back in my early days, honestly, we did a prototype of something and uh, I brought in somebody from my shop and I was like, what do you think about this? this is great, right? He's like, no. And I said, well, why? And he said, I <laughs> he said, I can't fit the tool into that space that I need to actually crimp that pipe. And I thought, wow, I never thought about that. I'm not the one that crimps the pipe. Like, right. Like I was like, it makes sense to be there, but it didn't because, you know, in order to make that system work, somebody had to open up the jaws of some piece of equipment that didn't fit. So I think that's where the valuable information you know, from the FM community is so important. And also how we want it to operate, what performance standards it needs. And yeah, I think it's it's a wide variety of information that um, industrialized construction with resulting information will, will provide and how you can play a role in that. So 
So that's where the internet of things comes in when we talk about that network. It's understanding that that information's embedded in there and that essentially the building can speak, right? It can say, okay, it's time for my new filters. And, right. you know, informed by the building engineer, um, we've communicated with one another. And I know that we have, you know, X number held in storage and that we'll be able to do the full um, change out and I'll reorder, meaning the system will automatically reorder the next batch for, for the next change out of the filters. You know what it reminded me of when I, when I first started thinking about like this in totality, I was like, you might not remember these. Do you remember dash buttons from Amazon? They were like little buttons that you could, they were internet enabled buttons. They don't have them anymore, but okay. So no one really remembers this, but I fell in love with them. I thought they were, and to me, it always stuck in my head. So you could get a Ziploc dash button. It was a little internet enabled thing that was branded with Ziploc as an example. And you would put it on the inside of your Ziploc drawer where you keep your bags. The second I was running out of Ziplocs, I could push the button and it knew the predetermined amount that I had programmed for my Ziplocs and it would reorder them just by pushing the button. Come on. I swear, that's actually old tech. That tech existed like, I don't know, 10 years. They got rid of them like 10 years ago, I think. Now it's just Alexa, order me more Ziplocs. You know, so I think, and that knows the predetermined, right? So, but the, like that whole concept, which if you think about that, right, because Ziplocs are a product, right? Yes. And yes, I manually had to push that button, but in more complex systems, quote unquote, pushing the button won't necessarily, it could be manual or it could come from the information provided by the building, right? So think about that. Yes. I I mean, I I get it. It's like the Samsung refrigerator that knows you have items that you always order. You have no milk, right. it sends the list to the grocery store and it's delivered when they sync up with your calendar for five o'clock when you arrive home at your house. Right, I mean, so the funny part is I feel like in the AEC world, and I say AEC MO, manufacturers and, uh, and uh, owners, operators, but okay, we think that the stuff I'm talking about sounds like it's on Mars. Right? right. When we like what building? No, like this is old tech. Like I'm talking about tech that already exists that right. we just need to enable and use our smartest people to enable it now before they retire. That's it. Like, you know, I mean, I'm not saying there won't be new tech and con- like greater, better contact. There will be. But most of the tech I personally talk about exists. And it, that's a big secret. It's just it's almost like I always use the expression. We want to play chess. However, we have pretty much all the chess pieces, but we have to rearrange them to play chess because right now they're set up to play Mahjong. Like, you know what I mean? Like we're playing Mahjong with chess pieces and we're not really getting great Mahjong skills. Like, but they, they're they there. Like, I mean, so, <laughs> I don't know if anyone even knows what the game Mahjong is, but my mom plays Mahjong. So I know um, what Mahjong is. Okay, good. <laughs> I use it as an example. <laughs> oh, I think it's a, I think it's a great example. You know, Edie Weiner, who is a, a futurist, she says, everything that is already, everything that's going to change the future is already here today. I love that. And that is true. I think, and, and quite frankly, if we have a lot of customers, I think in general that I talk to or, you know, what they, what they, they can see the future, right? I don't think it's too far-fetched to understand what I just said as the future, right? Right. Um, I think what, 
And I do think they understand why they want to get there, right? We're all looking for certainty. We're looking for better productivity. We understand we have a labor issue. We all want better sustainability holistically. And, you know, I think everyone gets that. It's the part in between the what we want and where we want to go that those first concrete steps of action and a framework to get there that most companies are struggling with, right? Mm -hmm. And I love that you had Melissa here because, you know, uh, she's one of our consultants at Autodesk that works with us on Lean for our, on, our, on our manufacturing consulting team for what we call convergence, right? As, as all the world converges, the process converge, technology converge, all the things we're just talking about, right? Oh, IoT yeah. integrated things. People need to have a framework to understand how do I get from where I am today to where I want to go. And it doesn't start out um, as my other friend um, that works in robotics and automation, Brent McPhail says, you don't buy a level four um, robot when you're at level one readiness. And that's the thing you will buy. You could afford it. You would spend a lot of money on it, but it would sit in the corner and get dusty and you'd be like, we failed at robotics. And that's not true. You just weren't ready for that level four, you know, six access arm robot in your facility at that time. You were probably ready for some, you know, lesser, more simple automation. And, you know, the, the issue is, is that what's holding us back isn't that the technology doesn't exist. It, it, what's holding us back isn't that there aren't people that know how to do this. I think what's holding us back is that we are not an industry. We are an ecosystem of many industries, all with different drivers. Um, that are unfortunately, in lots of cases, they've been paid to do work that doesn't necessarily benefit the downstream process. And asking them to give up payment for things that aren't valuable without replacing that with some other value for them makes it difficult for change. And I think if you can lay out a framework for how they'll be so much better off if they would let go of that piece that is truly not valuable at the moment to the ecosystem, but just to them, if they could give that up, they would be much more, um, you know, future-proof for the way in which the world is going to change. And un unfortunately, you have to go through a bit of a learning curve to get there. And because we're, we're so really, we're siloed and we're project-centric. So we've got like a lot of things working against us in that sense. Like I need big owners, and this is where facility management comes in. You guys are looking at the long game but you've got to you've got to look at everything as if it's the long game, including procurement of your construction managers and your your service contracts and your subcontractors. You cannot look at this like you're hiring them for a project because people who are project centric don't make long game decisions. Period. Hmm. So you touched on something in that bit of conversation that I think is really important, even though. We have been handcuffed in many respects by these silos that are dropped into the ecosystem, right? They're like, I control this piece of the process and I'm only going to do it my way. Right. It is kind of a backdoor controls around that, right? By the owner saying, dictating how the construction or the manufacturing of the components is going to happen. Is that true? It is. And with that comes the fact that they need to take on some risk. And so I feel like when I say that to owners, they're like, yeah, that makes sense. And I'm like, great. Now you have to create a playbook for whatever, like I call them serial owners, owners that have big programs across multiple geos that or multiple you know regions yep. that they want operational consistency, right? So 
if you if you need if operational consistency is important to you and um to many it, it's the number one thing right mm-hmm. you then have to take on more of a playbook mentality you have to dictate more um how you want your buildings to be designed procured and assembled and so that you can operate it in such a way that is consistent and unfortunately many of the owners in the past, because this is complicated, right? You're talking about, you're asking the owner to understand six different, seven different industries and be the expert in, you know, it seems like that. You're asking them to take on the role of like the mechanical, you know, person. But in reality, they just have to foster a process where they are decoupling as much process as possible and productizing it for future use. And in order to do that, it takes investment. So it takes investment on the owner's part. It takes risk. And, you know, taking on some of that risk and dispelling that risk quickly, because honestly, you're pretty much the only people that can get rid of that risk by informing us and informing the ecosystem of what is needed and truly partnering with the people that are in the ecosystem all the way downstream. And that's important. And that's a different role than the owner has had in the past. Right. So they've pretty much been sometimes at arm's length and said, here's the basis of what I need. You guys figure it out and come back and tell me that I've gotten it or, or not. You know what I mean? Right, but there's a cost to that, and one that is is great um, in terms of schedule, in terms of yeah. you know the final construction costs. Right. Um, let's face it. We, you know, I think that owners have become anesthetized to the downsides of our industry and accepted them as a result, and they don't have to. In other words. Um, and I hear what you're saying that really where it needs to start is with big companies that have multiple facilities, either developers or they have rollout programs with stockholders and they, you know, put, uh, 35 units in the Northeast of, you know, X retail bank. Uh, locations uh, every year. Because this is not free. I mean, that's the part I want you to to understand how to productize things and decouple process into product that suits you as an owner. You need to almost do it outside of a project. You need to understand what are the, what are the assemblies and components and products that you consistently use across your program that Mm -hmm. could be decoupled from process Mm -hmm. and and productized. So, and you should think of it as a journey, productizing 10% of your building, productizing 20%, 30%, 50%, all the way up to, you know, some percentage as a, as a big goal, right? Because the more you can productize, we all know what a generator costs. We all know what the lead times are. We all know we design around those. That is the consistent thing that we do know, which is why we order them at the date we know we have to order it. Right. Right. So think of other things in your building and they all just about can be productized like that generator. But doing that, you know, uh, those generator companies didn't get there for free, like all that product development and understanding of the right partners they have that support their production line and the way they work. That takes time. The reason the big owners can drive this is they can allocate those costs over 35 buildings, just like you just said. So no one else, because they are not unfortunately, because the way in which procurement has normally worked, they're not able to allocate those learnings and those costs over your next 35 buildings because you haven't hired them for 35 buildings. You hired them for one. So if you're the owner and you have the 35 buildings, you have to put the effort and the investment in. And that's upfront going to cost you money, time, and effort, 
which then will transform your 35 buildings so that the last one, the cost is going down and more certain and your schedule is getting faster because the more you can create certainty around products, the better you get at not just creating them, but buying them, fabricating them and installing them. If you keep doing that over and over and over again to the same part, you just get better at it. The reason that we don't get better at things is not only do we not install the same things, but we do it with different teams. So the consistent team we have is the owner. And so therefore, I mean, I would like the owner to make, I see around the world contracts now where they're saying, you're going to build all 10 of our things. And we want the same project management team on all 10. You have to guarantee us that. And by the way, we're shooting for these targets of savings on you know, schedule. And you know we understand cost is, we're spending this upfront, but we'd like to target the cost at the last on the 10th unit as this. So that is not... Uh, strange for me to say those words. That's like every other industry in the world. And like, that's what, how manufacturing works. And that's how these owners, if they're making something knows that like cars, you don't just, they spend a lot of money on, uh, you know, designing cars <laughs> or trucks. Yeah. If you want to design a building that you have 35 of, you got to spend some money and more than you would spend if you just made one. So you're, you're creating products that are reusable that, um, I, by the way, I always say to architects, when it comes to design for manufacturing and assembly and the future, that you should stop, like you stop metrics on how many things you're drawing and how many sheets you can put out and how many people take. Start measuring yourself on how many things you never have to draw again. Yeah, owners should think the same way. How many parts of our buildings are already predetermined with a supply chain partner and an installation procedure and you know the way in which that operates that we know before I ever hire anyone else. Like start asking yourself how many parts of your building truly are certain and how do you increase the amount of those things in your building? And that will cost you some money to do time and effort. But once you've done that, you are, that's the transformational change that owners truly have been looking for, I believe. Okay. So I want to dig into that because I, I could see if I were an architect having my breath taken away by this idea that all of a sudden I wouldn't be drawing the door schedule again or somebody in my I office love that you said be, that be doing that because <laughs> they they um they need to learn how to do a door schedule, right? Well um, go ahead. thinking, uh, you know, it's I'm losing a square foot. I can't I've already given away, you know, the control of the project site to the CM. Now you want yes. to to draw even less. Yes. What's in, so everybody's going to be asking, what's in it for me if I'm going to be part of your revolution, Amy? I want to know what's in it for me. How can I use that time to express the uniqueness of the building through the design um, and take away the mundane elements um, and relegate that to kind of a different camp in my world? I mean, you've basically said it there at the end, right? First of all, I love that you use door, door schedules because I don't know one architect that likes doing door schedules, period, right? So like, I I truly believe the parts that need to be productized first and not drawn again are all those things that they don't want to draw, right? So, and nobody, I don't know an architect or an engineer in the world, to be honest, that loves drawing fire stairs. I always use that as an example. So the thing is, we all talk about that we, like, especially architects. I love architects, by the way, and I think they should love me. And here's why. <laughs> Honestly, it's not. Unfortunately, prefabrication has been talked about. Like, look at the productivity on doing prefabrication, and it's so productive. And blah blah. It's like no. 
what, what productization does for an architect is if you're able to have product, right? Let's say 50% of the building has been productized with parametric design. You can then use as an architect computational design to understand the right aggregation of those products, the right um, choices within those products, which products to choose for what sites that make the most sense because you've par parametrically productized them. So it allows the architect to use the technology in order to make the right choices. And then what it does, because you can use the technology by pushing a button to give you that answer, it frees you up for the other 50% of the building that you actually want to put your stamp on and signature on, and that you actually want to impact the way in which the end users are interacting with that building. Like I have a friend, he works, I won't say what industry, but he's got um, a retail business, a big one, and he's the chief marketing officer. And he's going through like, I don't know, he has X amount of buildings to build. And he's like, I don't understand it, Amy. I sit in these meetings with architects and all I care about for this chief marketing officer, he's like, I want the experience of the building. I want to know that they're going to buy more things. I want them to feel safe within my space. I want them to feel... No architect in the world has time to spend their time on that when they are drawing fire stairs and door schedules. They just don't. Yeah. So yeah. think of the world. The, 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 the answer is, is that they will be able to, and they're going to have to enhance their skill sets in things like computational design and understanding parametric design. But they will truly, instead of just talking about the end user experience and the things they are drawing um, and, and enabling in that sense, the, the pieces of the building that are more custom, that are more their signature, they're going to have to really be the best at doing that part now, not just talking about the part, because people will demand that part. And I think that's what people will pay for, because that's really why they became architects. Yeah. You know, it's like, and the same, it's funny, to the, the general contractors, recently I was on a data center panel with my friend Ben Kaplan from Turner, and he said, you know, I've known him a long time. They do a lot of data centers, and he was like, we realized that Turner, I'm paraphrasing, I'm not getting exactly right, but he's really close to, we realized we have to be the best integrator of these pieces, a systems integrator of these pieces and parts on site. Yeah, you could basically say like, that takes my work away, or you could be like, no, it's gonna create more work for me in a different area that I truly could get skill set and competitive advantage at. And I think that's, and by the way, two of the things that we really got into these businesses to do, right? It's like, I think you should look at IC and, and technology as getting rid of the first things technology gets rid of are the mundane, the, the, the normal, the stuff that you don't, you know, like sort of the, the pain points, right? Like the things that are really complicated and hard. And that's what we want it to do. I think the parts we really enjoy the most are the things that we keep within our in our silos that have value, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. So, you know what, I, you mentioned a story about uh, a young guy. And I say that because he is young and is a, a guy that was hanging drywall. And he moved away from that into a mechanized role. Tell me about, you know, your conversation with him and what the implications of that are. Sure. I mean, I, you know, I'm a big fan of sustainability and I truly believe sustainability. I have to preface that story by saying sustainability is not just about environmental sustainability. By the way, 40% of what's in our landfills is construction waste. Productization by removing digital first and then physical waste will have a huge impact on that. The other impacts holistically it'll have is in um, social sustainability, industry sustainability, and economic sustainability. Social sustainability, creating communities and, and industry sustainability in some sense where we need to bring in diverse population into our workforce. We all know that. So how does that, how does IC, industrialized construction, help with that? I was touring, um, actually, Binsky and Snyder, a mechanical contracting firm, during 
the queen of prefab video shoot series. And um, there was a, a, a gentleman, a young guy working a tiger stop piece of equipment. And he was doing some stuff on his iPad and he was all by himself there. Actually, he could run the piece of equipment all by himself and was incredibly productive as one person. And I had to walk up to him because I'll be 50 in a few months. And I always say like, I'm the reason I came to Autodesk is because I, I want what's in my head to live out after I'm retired, hopefully at some point. And it needs to be through tech. And he said, I was like, how do you, how do you like doing this? And he was like, yeah, I used to hang drywall. I'm like, well, what do you think about this? He's like, better than hanging drywall. He's like, I, I want to do this. Like, I want to use my iPad. And I want, he said, I'm like, I said, how old are you? He said, I'm 23. And I said, he's like, I'm the only guy that really knows how to run this piece of equipment, you know, this with my, in this way, I'm sure they have other people, but like, you know, he was really proud of the fact that he works there. And by the way, he also gets to co-locate his college classes he's taking near that facility. He's not driving around all over the place and he gets to have a life. He gets to have a gym near that factory. He gets to have a, a college you know, career that he's doing over there. But that's- He doesn't have to get up at five in the morning no. to be there to run the, the iPad. Well, and the, the thing is, he doesn't, you know, when you're in conventional construction as a woman or a man who's taking care of your daycare, because both do, and like, you don't, how do you co-locate your life near a job site that you don't know where you're going to be? Listen, I was married to a superintendent for many years. I didn't know where he was going to have to be an hour away, three hours away, two hours away, like 30 minutes away, five minutes away, just at different times and different jobs, different weeks. It's really hard to have a life and how to attract people that want to use tech especially young people when they're all over the place geographically, but also when they're geographically around there and they're not using tech. So what you kind of get double duty with industrialized construction, you co-locate them at one location and you give them tech to work at. And by, for the record, there are a lot of jobs within factories that are not so hard. To, you can sit, it's ergonomic. You don't have to go up a million stairs. You're not like outside in the, in the elements. There's a million reasons why it makes sense from social and economic sustainability, putting factories in places where they can flourish and where you have people of diverse talents and diverse populations that can work there, right? So and I you think- you don't have to be able to, you know, lift 75 pounds. You don't because there's an overhead crane maybe in that place or they've got like, you know, some kind of lift system that where I'm sitting down at a table all day making electrical components. And by the way, if I'm aging out of wanting to be on site and I have all that knowledge, what a better place to go than inside. We're in a factory to teach people to do these things or, you know, to inform those products that we set up front that need the guy who only knows that the tool is that big. You know what I mean? This is really yeah. great for them. Uh, yeah, it's it's amazing. So what I want to talk to you next about um, is this robotics piece. I want to talk a tiny bit about additive manufacturing. Again, thinking about the ways in which hey, I'm not rolling out a program of 100 units every single year. I maybe am responsible for a single building or I only work for my company. And my company has four floors inside a corporate office building. Um, you know, there are so many different scenarios for the FMs out there. Sure. Are they going to say to themselves, there's no there's no place for me in this IC picture, or is there? And I'd like to throw into that mix um, academic institutions. Sure. And, and ask the question, this is a long one, but um, is there a place for a collaborative where 
even if you're only one smaller company or a smaller um, academic institution, you could team with a group of like-minded people. Sure. You do this. Great. Okay. Let me take the first question. Is there a place for me in the FM community, in the IC world that I've just laid out? Yeah. So I think there's more of a world than that world, a better world for you and a more intelligent world and a functional world for FMs than exists today. That's my opinion. I'm not an FM and I'd love for somebody in FM to contact me if you don't agree. And I'd love to have the conversation. I'm happy to always evolve my thoughts, but you know, you're talking about FM process has now become product. Mm -hmm. You can operate product, right? Everyone, you know, like what, what FMs, the guys that I know that are in FM, right. Which is why they get sometimes moved to the front of the processes. They're operating things that are inconsistent or they have to, they want them a certain way, or they want to ensure that they're not inconsistent. Right. So as we gain more and more consistency around the pieces and parts that go within these buildings, almost as more assets and equipment, you play more of a role in the project and the, and the program planning as FM. And I think you also take an elevated role that is more about assessing and managing those pieces of equipment, hopefully utilizing more technology and, you know, making sure that they're acting as systems, which is really your role, but having the information easily and readily available to you in a hopefully like almost a living, breathing format that you're managing. So what does that mean? I'm glad you said academics in there. I think if you're in a, let me take FM and tie a little academics to it before I move fully into academics. I think you then have to ask yourself, Whatever your role is in FM, do I have this? This is why things get kiboshed, by the way, by uh, in, uh, by incumbents. Do I have the skill set in that world that we just described? Do I know how to use technology? Can I change my mindset to be more like productization? By the way, I used to have a customer, a client that loved being out in the field and loved managing subs, and it was in very exotic locations. And his boss, I would always say, I'm never going to sell them prefabrication because that guy's lifestyle is that he loves doing construction in beautiful places around the world. Good luck. I cannot sell your company. You know what I mean? I'm like, mm-hmm. so, and that was true. I, it was very hard because that guy's lifestyle was going and solving problems in really cool places. And he loved doing that. And he loved being conventional because it took him more time to do it. And he would stay in those cool places for a long time. So I was like, I have no chance there. So how do you then evolve your skills, assuming you're not that guy that wants to stay and be in you know, a cool place, but assuming that you're not him or her, how do you evolve your skill set to really be valuable in a world like that? How do you start thinking about aggregating the design for manufacturing and assembly principles for operations? Like when I'm designing and manufacturing, by the way, in some ways, we should be calling that design for manufacturing and assembly and operations, right? Like it should be DFMA-O, right? Or I usually say for design, uh, for disassembly and reuse, I should be adding an O for operations to my DFMA principles. And we already have it in the principles, but it's not in the title. So I think, what do you know about your facilities from an operations perspective that need to be captured out of your head and put into the tech of that product? Start thinking about those things. You'll become very valuable within your organization. If Not only can you articulate it if you're sitting in the room, but if you're able to have that be memorialized within tech. And I think also your own skill sets of utilizing technology and understanding 
you know, what technology can be integrated and your understanding of the full building, which many people have in FM right now. I'm talking as if no one has this. Lots of people have these skills, but, you know, the skills I think that are most important are these, that your job will change. You're going to have technology integrated into it. You're going to have to understand requirements for operation, not just, again, um, you know, to verbalize, but to be memorialized and and, and have proof points, right? Because really, I think the other part that FM's um, are underrated for, and they do have a skill set, is metrics on operations, right? So mm-hmm. how do we, as we're talking about parametric design, how do the what the known factors of metrics on these pieces of equipment that we already have, how does that factor into the parametric design? So when we are picking the right applications through use of something like a generative product, that that data is embedded within that 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 element, that piece of equipment. That's where this is going to get really interesting for the, the FMs. And then I think if you who can help them with that? If you do have the skills, fantastic, many do. If you don't, ha- uh, you can get that from some universities that really do need to start embracing. Some have and some have not yet. I see as a more holistic conversation. So mm-hmm. not just prefab. It's sometimes unfortunate. My name is the queen of prefab, I say, but uh, it was catchy. And um, and Jim actually had let me put it on my card even. But I think the fact of the matter is it's so much bigger than that, right? So we're talking about changing and transforming the built environment. So now you're in academics. So many colleges these days aren't even teaching building information modeling yet. So, right, all of that. By the way, building information modeling is is the cornerstone of IC. It's one of the you know technology and process enablers that is going to allow three dimensional, four dimensional, multi dimensional CAD is necessary as a foundational tool for IC for productization and what we're talking about parametrically. And thank thankfully, you know, Phil Bernstein paved the way for me. Um, with building information modeling around the world. So we need that. And so colleges, one of the things we've done, at least in my group at, at IC at Autodesk, is we've actually created a, a curriculum that we're rolling out, I believe, actually, I'm, I'm hopefully not speaking out of turn, but in the fall, we're shooting for the fall, and it's going to be reusable curriculum. So curriculum that we can give to institutions that they can reuse and adapt around all the topics we just talked about. And um, and I don't have an FM uh, side. I would love to add that module. So if anybody wants to, or you, Jackie, or anybody else wants to add some information from FM from that perspective, I can tell you right now that it's not in the curriculum. I'd be happy to add it to the IXC curriculum uh, perspective on FM. And I think that's needed. Definitely talk to um, the IFMA Boston think tank and Janessa Durrani about it because it's critically important. And I do see and um, believe that the FMs have uh, such a wealth of knowledge about the functionality of these buildings that it would be um, a missed opportunity to not include them in that conversation. And I, you know, when you're talking about metrics and operations and the technology, those are often the things that you know, landlords, um, you know, institutional stewards um, care about because they want to know, well, you know, how long is the building going to, you know, stay up and running right before I have to replace those systems? Can I bundle projects together? Right. To, you know, get scope savings, um, you know, because I'm buying, you know, 17 new generators at once. Right. Uh, all of the facilities that need them. Um, that information is 
of critical importance to the C-suite. That's what they care about often. You know what's funny? Bottom line. You use generators as that, how do I bundle? Imagine if you could bundle central utility plants in totality. Imagine if you could bundle bathrooms in your hospital in totality. Imagine if you could bundle distribution racks. Imagine if you could bundle elevators that are prefabricated. Imagine if what you just said, you can, that's my point, right? Like, I love that, Jackie, you can. You can. And and to me, it's such a shame that um, it's not happening. And I don't want to give the impression, as I'm sure you don't, that, you know, uh, the poor subcontractors are bullying anybody. Uh, but there is a way for everybody to come out of this um, being more profitable, yes. being safer. Oh, 100%. Right? Safety is so important. Um, doing things in a more sustainable way yep. for our environment. Um, I, I, it all exists here and I'm sure is scary for people, you know, but I love that Autodesk is doing some training around how to become um, facile in this world, how to make sure that you don't fall into obscurity, which is really important to our FM. A hundred percent. And by the way, I, I would never, I love the subcontractor side of the business, by the way, I think they have a lot of knowledge, just like the FMs on how things need to be productized. And I think everyone plays a role. So the good news is there, again, I'm not going to say in the future, future, there aren't winners and, and losers, but the, the losers don't have to lose if they shift. And I think you can shift your skill set. And that's why I say, like, if you figure out that the world is, you know, we know that 45% of, of everything in your building is going to be utilized in an IC former fashion in the next 15 years through McKinsey and some other studies, but it's already there. A lot of it's already there now, depending on if your building is heavy MEP integrated, it's already there just right now. So the good news is, is that everyone can win. It's just, you have to figure out on that transformation framework, what your foundational skills are, where you have some gaps. How do you start thinking about both data and the physicality of products as reusable so that you can start automating process and digitizing those processes to be easier to do? And when they're easier and automated and productized, you can unlock some capabilities that are more difficult now, like things like generative design and digital twin for the ultimate, which for me is circularity, right? So that your job becomes easier, everyone's job becomes easier because we're reusing both physical and digital you know, products. That That's what we really want at the end of the day because for so many reasons. And I think, I, by the way, our strategy at Autodesk really is my mantra in life and has been, is just, we want to make this easier. For I want, I personally want to make it easier for everybody um, to be able to utilize DFMA and, and prefabrication and all the other things you talked about. But it truly is going to take a connected ecosystem to do that, not just one one pillar within our community, not just one tech company, not just one owner. It takes all of us to create ecosystem influence, especially those that have the most power at the top. And ultimately, you know, we do the thing I'm most passionate about, which I came to Autodesk for, is that we need a knowledge center that is neutral like at Autodesk so that we could help everybody. So we could do partnerships with universities and with you know, industry. And that's the only way that this is going to change. The, the, the thing that's so complex about this, and, and honestly, why I came to Autodesk is you need a platform company that has a lot of software in the stack. 
in order to make this possible. Now, they, they we don't have everything at Autodesk. That's why we're a platform company. There's lots of other software that integrates within our product portfolio. You truly need a connected ecosystem with some big anchor tenant products to make this work because it's you're asking people to transform a lot. And the one thing I don't want to ask them to transform is, you know, the way in which, um, you know, I don't want them to say that they can't be successful in it, right? So they are truly going to be the hero of their own story if they are are open to learning and they they will they will exist on this planet and flourish. And I think that's what's important. Well, I I think that what you've offered us today is absolutely incredible, Amy. I mean, I hope that the FMs received the message with open arms that the good news is that regardless of the size of the company um, or portfolio of uh, properties or property, they have agency here. Yes. And where that comes from is their ability to start to think differently about what is in their purview, what they're controlling, either inside their space or inside their buildings, and then to start to get the training. Training exists out there to understand what the implications of that digital world are to them. Yes. And to be able to communicate that to their C-suite, there's real power in that to be able to say, you can be part of something that will ultimately save you money, will deliver your buildings at a higher quality, faster than ever before, and keep you at the, you know, the top of that competitive advantage in the marketplace. Who wouldn't listen to that if you were an owner? I, I, I agreed. I think it's just the good news is you have everything right in that. Now I just hope that we can continue our relationship with the FM community to then say, I know what it can bring. I know the benefits and I know why we want it. And what steps can we start taking in both partnerships and training and just educating? You know, I'll speak at almost anything out there to evangelize about what's going on. I think that's really important that I don't want people to see there's a future and not know how to get there. I want to make sure most people think I'm pretty tough in this space, but you know me, Jackie, like I'm actually a really sweet person and I rarely, I rarely say no, that's my problem, but I rarely say no. And you might not like what I have to say and it might. But I, at the end of the day, I'm saying it because I always say the harder the truth to tell, the truer the friend that will tell it to you. Like if I don't give you this real talk, you won't know what's coming and you won't know where you can really succeed and where you might you know, come into challenges. I think that's, that's the important part. I want to make sure that we all do better and that we can really create a better world for all of us. Well, I can't thank you enough for sharing uh, all of your industry knowledge and insight, you are an inspiration to me. And if I have anything to do with it, I will make sure the conversation continues with the FM community. Love it. Thank you so much for having me. It's been my pleasure. All right. We want to thank you for listening today. Visit ifmaboston.org slash podcast to see all of the show notes and any resources discussed in the episode. I'm your host, Jackie Falla, and this is FM Forward, where if you're an FM, buildings are assets, and it's your job to keep people happy, or at least happily working. Until next time.